Welcome to episode 53 of the MMA Rundown Podcast. And it has been a very busy week. Obviously, last Sunday during episode 51, I said that there would probably be some sort of update on UFC 249 and that I would cover it over the course of the week. Then right after that, UFC 249 was announced and they had announced the full card when they made that announcement. So then I did a quick, somewhat, I guess you'd call it emergency podcast. I don't know that an emergency is the best word for it, but um, special edition, whatever you want to use to describe it. So I was talking about the card as a whole, uh, what we knew at the time, who is in, in which fight. So we had Tony Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje, for example. So just breaking down a lot of the fights there, talking about how they hadn't announced the location of it and talking about how they were going to have to handle that with the COVID situation. And unfortunately, over the course of the week, with Dana White saying that he did not want to reveal where it was going to be, because once that happened, that people would probably start to figure it out, and they start pressuring local politicians to shut it down. His fears were proven correct. Jeff Sherwood of SureDog was able to figure out where it was. Uh, once they were able to pinpoint that it was on a reservation in California, they got California senators involved, they got the California governor involved, and ultimately the California governor reached out to the head of Disney who runs ESPN and then was able to get them to stand down Disney obviously with them having a lot of business that takes place in Los Angeles with them being a huge entertainment entertainment giant you obviously don't want to be on the wrong side of the California governor so they took that call took what he said to heart called up Dana White and said hey look we we just can't do this obviously if you're running an event that is not going to have any live fans uh, you're pretty much relying entirely upon your your visual distributor uh, that being ESPN and Disney. So with them not being on board, that's obviously going to be enough for Dana White to have to pull the plug on it, which is what happened. Uh, so then I put up another video there, put up another video when that announcement was made just to react to that. Uh, so I guess at this point, since I did break down the card on episode 52, I'm not really going to break down what could have been uh, since that was already done. Um, I'll, I'll kind of reiterate what I had mentioned in that recent video about how I found the way that this was a shutdown upsetting uh, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, other topics to talk about on top of that, though, we have Dominic Cruz uh, stepping in over Jose Aldo to fight Henry Cejudo, assuming that fight still takes place. So I'll talk about that and the whole situation with whether or not that fight probably will take place. Uh, we've got some interesting news from um, college wrestling where a couple uh, really good Oklahoma State wrestlers, one of them a two-time All-American, probably would have been a three-time All-American this year had he had a chance. He was definitely ranked to do so, but that tournament got canceled. They have moved over to AKA. And we'll be training there alongside Daniel Cormier, obviously, and we'll also be coaching alongside Daniel Cormier among a, a few other high-level wrestlers who are coaching at Gilroy. Uh, so I'll talk about that. Maribek Tysimov was a surprising name that got cut from the UFC a little while back. It turns out that whatever that cut was, apparently that was some sort of thing with negotiations. They have renegotiated a new deal, or they've negotiated a new deal, I should say, and now he's back in the UFC, so I'll just make a, a brief mention of that. Um, bit of a surprise in the wrestling world. The guy who arguably would would be the world teamer for the 57 kilogram weight class right now it's sort of up in the air between thomas gilman and dayton fix uh the u.s sent thomas gilman to qualify for the spot for this year though and he was able to do so so it looked as though with gilman having a recent win over fix that there was some expectation that he'd probably be the guy to to represent the u.s at that weight class who's a former world silver medals in 2017 but he's going to be leaving iowa city and going to penn state uh to train out there so i'll talk about that situation and i guess unfortunately one of the things i've heard in that interview is it sounds like he really does want to keep keep at it with wrestling i think he would have been fantastic for mma he's got a great personality uh could have definitely been a a featherweight superstar but 
regardless of that, I'll, I'll talk about the wrestling side of that. And then the last thing to mention is some minor updates in the Claudio Dovell, uh, Ricardo De La Hiva situation. So back to the top for UFC 249. Um, I mean, there's just a lot to be upset about here. Uh, obviously, it, it's pretty clear at this point that the reason why Disney decided to pull a plug wasn't because they just like had a late change of heart after the UFC went ahead and made this work. Obviously, the UFC was making it clear that they were going to try to make this event work for a while. It was very clear for a while that if that event were to happen, that would happen on ESPN. So it's not as though ESPN didn't know this was happening. Then the UFC's like, hey, we're going to run, do an event. And then the ESPN was like, actually, no, don't do that. Uh, ESPN was fine with the UFC going through all the work and all the trouble of trying to set it up in the first place, only for them to be the ones to pull the plug later. And as I mentioned before, the reason why is because they got new pressure after the fact from Gavin Newsom and uh, Diane Feinstein of California. So, to that end, as far as how upset I should be with Disney, I, I again, if you're going to the CEO of Disney, I don't know what exactly happened on that call with Gavin Newsom and the CEO. I don't know if there were any implicit or explicit threats like, hey, if you guys do this, we're going to have to reconsider certain benefits that we offer you and your other businesses. I don't know if that was the case. Um, so, if that is the case and there was some sort of implicit threat like, hey, if you're going to do this, like we're going to have to maybe be a little less less available to work with you on some other stuff that we we've done with you in the past then for disney it probably is the right choice for them to have to pull the plug on this i don't know exactly what the pressure was now for gavin newsom and for diane feinstein to go out of their way to get the shut down that's a separate issue uh, obviously there are much bigger issues on hand for them than an mma event that's going to be closed to the public and only have like 50 people coming uh so why they would set their sights on it i think is a little bit odd uh Another thing that's worth mentioning is that with this coronavirus situation, you, whenever you're listening to the news, and I feel like I have to mention this every time, but it's it's worth mentioning, the news isn't going to give you the good news. They're going to give you the most salacious stuff, the worst-sounding stuff. That's why you heard about Italy all the time until Italy started to slow down. That's why you're hearing about New York all the time. They're, they're not giving you a balanced perspective of this. They're just looking at the worst situations, and that's what you're hearing about. So when you hear about the worst situations, you're like, oh, wow, that's going on in America. Wow, it must be really rough in America. You're really not taking into account, like, okay, well, how about the county I live in, how about the city I live in, how about the county where this event was going to take place? When you think about it in those terms and you say, okay, well, we know it's bad in New York, um, but Brooklyn is almost 3,000 miles away from where this Tachi Palace was, so what's it looking like in Tachi Palace? You would find that in the county that Lemoore, California, which is where the Tachi Palace is, in that county to this point, and again, we've been locked down for quite a while, technically the coronavirus has been around for, for much longer than that. Um, Something it may have been as early as November of 2019, even if you want to just start the clock on March 11th or March 12th when everything started shutting down. It's been over a month, and to this point, Kings County, California, has eight cases, zero deaths. That's it. Eight cases, zero deaths. So the event was going to take place in a place with eight cases and zero deaths, and you're bringing in, say, 50 people, 100 people, if you really want to like jack up that number as much as possible. All of them can be tested. So effectively what you have is you have a closed-door situation where you can test every single person who's involved, bring them into a location that has had eight cases and zero deaths to this point over the course of an entire month. And the idea is that this is not good. This is not safe for the fighters. This is not good for America to see. Like It's going to be like depressing for America to see people out and about and competing, even if it's in front of a, an, empty, an empty cage and there's no one there or an empty uh, audience. I, I, I just don't see how that that works even if you want to say well look the the county next to it is fresno county and fresno county is where the big big hospitals are fresno county had i believe 173 cases at that time and three deaths so again 
you're not looking at massive numbers here. It's not as though the Fresno County hospitals are getting overrun by people who have coronavirus. It's obviously not the case that there's a bunch of death and despair from it. Like Fresno County and Kings County are not hit terribly hard by it. If you were trying to do this in New York, no, that wouldn't be a great idea. Obviously, you have thousands of people dying in New York and you have a, a ton of cases out there. But to have an event done in Kings County, California, with eight cases and zero deaths, uh, where the county with the hospital is next to it has 173 cases and three deaths over the course of over a month, although really you're looking at beyond just a month, it just seems absurd to me to look at those specific stats of that specific area and say, you know what, this is just not not safe. It's sending the wrong message. It, it, it's just ridiculous. Like, I, I understand that there are risks involved, that if you just go wild west with it and just let people, like, stay really close to each other and just pack them in on a subway um, and don't worry about quarantining people who have had the virus or are showing signs that things can go wrong from there. But for the UFC to try to carefully run this event, have everyone well-tested, bring them into a location where no one's died from it, uh, where single-digit number of people have even gotten it. I, I just don't see what the danger is. I don't see why a situation like that warrants Gavin Newsom calling up the head of Disney and saying, hey, we got to pull the plug on this. Uh, why Diane Feinstein, um, between all the crap she, that she's been doing, uh, after that she was begging the president to allow more money to be sent to Iran, which is kind of odd given that it feels like a few months ago we were planning on going to war with them after we killed Soleimani, but that's a whole other point. It, it just seems odd that this was considered such a high priority that they had to shut it down, that we couldn't have an event in a location where hardly anybody has gotten it, where very few people have died, uh, in, in the county that was being held and zero people have died, as a matter of fact, of the coronavirus. And again, that's in a, in, in a situation that we have right now where coronavirus deaths, if you listen to the press briefings that the coronavirus task force is putting on, or the White House task force is putting on, it, it sounds as though they're actually kind of getting to a point where they're starting to overcount it to the point where if you have someone who has multiple issues, so if you have pneumonia and you also have COVID, it's not going to be a pneumonia death. It's going to be a COVID death. If you have, if you died of an undisclosed illness, rather than actually testing and proving that it was COVID, they'll they'll say that it was COVID. So there are COVID deaths that are being counted where people didn't actually have COVID. There are COVID deaths being counted where people had other conditions that were probably a lot more, a lot more effective in terms of putting them away. And yet COVID is what's being counted. So even the death counts we have now seem like they're a little bit high. If you look at the death counts now for flu and look at them for pneumonia uh, in the same time period, those specific causes have just plummeted. And a big reason why is because there are some people who likely would have died from pneumonia or likely would have died from the flu that also had COVID and COVID got, it, it got the bump over them. So it'll be interesting to see when this all ends to see how many total deaths there are this year versus last year. Obviously, with everything being shut down, there are a lot of other causes of death that are going to be limited. So, obviously, traffic deaths are going to be limited. Um, if people aren't around each other, look, COVID is not the only infectious disease out there. It's not the only dangerous infectious disease out there. I know there are a lot of people right now who talk as though it is. It definitely isn't. So, those specific diseases, there are probably going to be fewer fewer cases of them. Uh, so, maybe there are going to be fewer deaths as well. But it's just weird how, how those stats are being counted. But that whole point aside, even with that being the case, even with them being a little bit liberal in terms of how they're go ahead and or how they're counting these cases you still have zero deaths in king's county you still have three whole deaths in fresno county this is not an area of the country where you're at high risk this is not an area where if you bring the fighters in they're likely to catch something this is not an area where if the fighters are tested that they're going to create a big outbreak in the communities and yet for whatever reason the government felt the need to jump in and, and put a stop to it because apparently it was so dangerous and it was just such a huge risk to public health look at, at some point you're just never going to get to the point where we're going to get this down to zero. Even if we do get to a point where we have a vaccine, look, vaccines, for they take a long time to, to get approved for, for good reason because a lot of them have negative side effects that you have to be careful about. 
but even when you have a vaccine, I mean, there are flu vaccines and there's still tons of flu deaths every year. Um, there are flu treatments like Tamiflu and there's still tons of flu deaths every year. So you're never going to shut this down completely. The point is that you're going to have to get to a point where you're like, you know what? Yes, we know that this is a risk out there, like all other infectious diseases, but the question is going to be how risky is it? Is it going to be such a risk that we're going to overload our hospitals? Um, and if not, and if the death rate is relatively manageable, we're just going to have to go back to normal like we had before. Because again, it, it seems like people have very short memories here. But back in February, for example, plenty of other infectious diseases that were out there that could kill you if you caught them. But we kept moving forward because in the end, you have to sort of balance the risks and the rewards and <clears throat> the risk, the downside of just having the entire country shut down. Um, not quite there versus the reward of saving a few a few lives here and there because sadly enough if you look at the actual death stats and if anything this has really forced me to look at death stats throughout the throughout the country on an average year about three million three million americans die a year that's a lot of people uh when you look at it by cause i mean you have over six hundred thousand people who die of cancer um depending on certain counts some people say it's like eighty thousand that are alcohol related and others are like around 40 to 50 alcohol related uh that can kind of depend on a given year flu again sort of like that 50 to 60 range uh at this point I'm hearing that we're around like 20,000 for COVID. It, it seems like if we've hit the, the peak of the curve for COVID and if things start to slow down from here, there's a good chance that COVID might not break 35 or 40. Right now, the, the current model is saying around 60. It, even if it hits 60, it's not like it's significantly more deadly than some other common causes that we've had no problem living through, like the flu, uh, like pneumonia with those being risks, but we still continue to move, move along in our lives and live forward. So for the governor, for the senator to, to feel a need to shut this down and in a county that wasn't infected and with it being a situation where the UFC could have easily tested everyone and made sure everything was safe, it, it, it just seems so far out of line. And obviously there are plenty of people in the MMA media who were happy about this, who felt like it was some sort of victory that they were able to shut the UFC down. It is worth noting that they were like, why is it that the MMA community is so aggressive about this relative to other communities? The reason why is because Dana White actually wanted to run the event. So there was hope and there was like this argument back and forth of should we do it or should we not? Whereas in other sports like basketball, if the league itself said, look, we're not doing it, then there really isn't much of an argument of should they or shouldn't they because they already know the answer. It's a no. Whereas with Dana White, since he was pushing forward, you kind of had this question of whether it was, was it going to get through or was it not going to get through. So obviously a lot of people um, started looking at the facts that were available to them and determined whether or not they felt it was the right move to move forward. But to me, it felt like it was the right move to move forward. A lot of the fighters on the card really wanted it. Even fighters who weren't on the card, even when this got canceled, they were saying, look, we really appreciate Dana White's efforts here. Uh, we wanted to see the, the fights move forward, and we appreciate that he went through so much trouble just to try to get this to happen. So the fighters want this. Uh, there's some people talking about how managers are like not representing their fighters well because the managers are pushing forward with them. Like, well, yeah, well, the manager makes money when the fighter makes money. Yeah, that's the entire point of management. That's kind of the idea is that you give the manager a percentage, so that way the more you get, the the more the manager gets. So, for example, if I'm managing fighter A and fighter A only makes 10 grand and I get 10% of that, I'm only getting a grand, but if I'm able to make t fighter A get 100 grand, that now all of a sudden I'm getting 10 grand off of it. So the idea is that the more money I can make for my fighter, the more money that I make for myself. So this idea that managers are trying to push forward to, to make money for themselves, anytime a manager is making money for themselves it's because they're making money for their fighters so to say that that was managers acting against their fighters best interest it just doesn't make any sense it's not true and if you listen to all the fighters it seems like there are a lot more fighters coming out saying thank goodness they were able or thank goodness that the ufc went through all this trouble and i really appreciate it rather than it being why would the ufc go through all this trouble we don't want to fight obviously the fighters want to fight they love martial arts they love what they're doing they want to be able to compete and it's a bummer that didn't happen it's a bummer that it went all the way up to the governor of California who's got bigger fish to fry uh, to shut down an event in a county with eight cases and zero deaths. But ultimately, that's where we're at. And 
it, it looks like right now it, there's going to be a question of when the UFC is going to return. Dana White initially said that they were suspended indefinitely, then he said that he was looking to do Fight Island. If the reason for them canceling 248 was not that the head of Disney was like, you know what, I'm just morally against showing two people in close contact with one another during this time, and the issue was just that there was pressure from California, they didn't want to do an event specifically in California, then Fight Island can still happen, and I think ESPN will still run it. I don't know that Gavin Newsom or Diane Feinstein are going to reach out to the head of ESPN and be like, hey, don't show that event that's going on in a different country. And I, I mean, I wouldn't put it out of... I, I wouldn't put it past them to to go beyond their authority to try to do that. Obviously, if you look at some of the measures that have been put in place by some governments in the in the country right now, uh, they, they've definitely been stretching their authority a bit to, to see how far they can push things, whether it's finding people from go, for going to church on Easter or trying to chase people down who are running around alone at a beach because they're outside. I mean, you, you never know with some of these government officials, but... It seems as though Fight Island is not going to have the same issue that 249 has, so long as Fight Island isn't like property owned by California, and I, I don't believe that's the case. Uh, so then the question becomes, what are we getting with Fight Island? Um, when is it going to be available? Are the, is the UFC going to take the UFC 249 card and just make it a card in Fight Island? Um, is it just going to take some of those fights there and put them on separate cards within Fight Island? There's talk of fights happening on the 25th. I don't think that those are likely to happen at this point. Because uh, Dana White recently said it's going to take about a month for them to set up Fight Island, and with that being the case, that means we're probably looking at early May for Fight Island to be to be up and running. But speaking of early May, which I guess leads me into the next point, um, with Brazil being shut down, Jose Aldo was ha- had to pull out of the card against um, he, he had to pull out against Henry Cejudo, and in his place was was Dominic Cruz. So I guess the question here is. Would Brazil allow a flight from Brazil to Fight Island, wherever Fight Island is, to Jose Aldo? If that's the case, does he then step back in and, and re-earn that title fight? Uh, I guess a separate question for Aldo, and this is this is something that, I guess, with the quarantine, we really didn't get to see that much. Uh, but what was a concern of mine is that Aldo really looked like crap in his camp heading up until the Marlon Moraes fight, just like looked completely drained out. And a concern of mine was that the longer he stays at Bantamweight, the more he's going to have a little lifestyle where he's able to be within striking distance of that weight. And I figured that the camp leading up to this would just not would be full of bad pictures again, assuming that he's actually taking pictures and posting them online. Uh, so the question is, was he actually like just draining himself again to make 135? If he was, when that fight got pulled, did he just start to balloon back up? In which case, he wouldn't be able to make weight again. I, I'm I'm not sure what the case is there, uh, but assuming that he is out and Dominic Cruz is in, there's a lot of people upset about it because there are guys who are more deserving. Uh, you look at Peter Yan, Aljamain Sterling. To me. I would agree that Peter Yan and Aljamain Sterling both deserve title shots ahead of Dominic Cruz, but if the idea of this fight was that we were giving a title shot to someone who didn't deserve it anyway, and we all just kind of accepted, okay, fine, the the early May Bantamweight title fight is going to be between Henry Cejudo and a guy who doesn't quite deserve it, you, you're just kind of shifting it from one guy who doesn't deserve it to another. So yes, you could have taken that opportunity and given it to someone who's more deserving, but if we're going from Jose Aldo to Dominic Cruz, honestly, doesn't really bother me all that much kind of hope it happens do i think it's going to happen i I mean they're really pushing up against it right now with the timing on fight island um for the ufc are are they telling them to go ahead Uh, that's not something that's been publicly announced yet so this is going to be a story that's going to take a little while until we're going to hear more about it if dominic cruz does does make weight and does take this fight that'll be interesting to see because cruz has been a guy we haven't seen fight for quite a while uh there's a question regarding whether or not he's even healthy right now or if it's one of those things where it's like I'll, I'll take a fight if it's a title fight but if not I'm, 
I still need to fully rehab and still fully like heal up. But that specific matchup would be an interesting one just because of how the styles work out. Uh, Cruz is a guy who's constantly moving side to side and cutting different angles, so it's not as though he's a guy who stands square with you and is easy to, to line up for a shot and then attempt to take down on. Uh, it's got a bit of a different boxing style than what Harry Cejudo's used to fighting against. So is, is there definitely a possibility that Cruz is going to be able to win rounds on Cejudo and be able to outland him uh, relative to what Cejudo is able to land on him? That's definitely a possibility. And in a fight where you, if you t- take three rounds to two, you're going to win the title, is it possible that Cruz can do enough to win three rounds? I'd say so. Now, off of his back, it's not as though... And, and again, this is sort of hard to say with Cruz because he doesn't fight very often. And if you're making the assumption that he's training jiu-jitsu in the gym, his jiu-jitsu could be a lot better now than what we've seen in the past. Um, but I don't know that he's fantastic off his back. I know he has a bit of a habit to sort of like expose his back sort of like a wrestler does when he tries to get back up to his feet. Uh, but that's not necessarily the most risky thing to do against Hudo. so maybe it works for him. Maybe he's able to get up if Hudo takes him down. Uh, so that would be interesting. It'll be interesting to see how he's able to defend against Cejudo's takedowns because sh- I'm sure Cejudo will attempt some. Um, and then the striking, you have Cejudo's power. You have Cejudo's really good knees in the clinch. Um, pretty good in short range, uh, but then also pretty good at throwing long extended punches that can kind of catch you off guard. So it'll be interesting to see if he's able to time Cruz's entries and be able to land on him that way, or if Cruz is just able to, to add so much to his game over the time since we've last seen him where he's able to offer some new things that we haven't seen uh, he's able to do enough job, do a good enough job of keeping himself from being taken down, and able to just outland Cejudo for enough rounds to actually steal this and actually win the title. I think that's a real possibility. But again, we're going to see this as a fight that's made. But as a stylistic matchup, it's it, it's a really compelling matchup, even if you just look at the past stuff that we've seen from Cruz. But I think one of the most interesting things about Dominic Cruz is you know he's a guy who's really really smart, has a lot of good fight sense, and with all the time off, it's not as though he's not doing anything to improve. He's obviously training. He's obviously studying more and learning more about the game. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what new tricks we see from Dominic Cruz in addition to how he's able to implement the old ones. So hopefully that fight happens. I, I know he's not the most deserving of it given his, his long absence, but it, it's still a compelling fight and still one I'd be really happy to see. I mean, obviously at this point I'd be happy to see just about any fight, but that would be one that would really interest me and I'd really want to want to watch it multiple times to kind of break down what's going on over the course of it. Next topic to talk about is a few NCAA wrestlers who are moving over to MMA. So Nick Piccinini was an active wrestler at 125 pounds this year for Oklahoma State. Was, I believe, number four in the nation. So Spencer Lee was number one, uh, two-time national champion, won the Hodge this year as the the best wrestler in college. Um, Number two, I believe it was Jack Mueller. Three was Pat Glory, and then four was Piccinini. So Piccinini likely would have made it to the semifinals, went to the semifinals last year as well. And... It looked as though he, he had a real chance this year, um, assuming he did have the four seed, that he would have gone against Spencer Lee in the quarters, or in, in the semis. Spencer Lee is a guy who's beats him more often than not, but and that includes this year Spencer Lee did get a win over him, but Piccinini did pin Spencer Lee in a duel uh, at Oklahoma State last year. So it's a, it's a guy who he has beaten before, and, I mean, you never know what happens in the NCAA tournament. Maybe he pulls off a huge upset there and is able to get to the finals and do something greater than that, but it looked pretty likely regardless that he would have been an All-American, making him a three-time All-American. And that's the sort of pedigree that we have from him heading into MMA. Uh, so for him, it'll be interesting to see if he fights at flyweight or bantamweight. Uh, if he's able to make 125 fairly often in wrestling, you'd figure that he'd be able to make 125 in MMA as well, but the older you get, sometimes you grow a bit, and maybe you just don't want to make the giant cuts anymore, so we'll see where he goes. As far as his wrestling style for MMA, he's got a fairly good wrestling style for MMA, uh, he was known for being pretty good um, from neutral uh, with his takedowns. Uh, good mix of explosive takedowns and also um, 
good at sort of like cutting his angles and dragging people to the mat. Um, had some cool takedowns like the one with Spencer Lee where he was able to lock up a cradle and um, take him down with a cradle and then pin him from there. Uh, but on top of that, he was really known for being good on top. And one of the things that I mention all the time, and I guess with Henry Sudo just being mentioned, this is a good time to bring it up again, is that a big difference between freestyle wrestling and folk style wrestling is that in freestyle wrestling, when you take a guy down, in theory, you, you don't necessarily have to turn him. Like, you'll, you'll be fine if you don't, but you do get rewarded if you're able to just kind of, like, spin him around, even though it's not as much about control as much as it is just giving their shoulder blades to rotate. Um, but in folk style wrestling, being able to hold a guy down over an extended period of time, being able to turn him, is worth a whole lot more and it, it really has a lot more value and that was an area that pitching and he really excelled and so taking that skill set and then applying it into jujitsu and then also applying that into mma uh is definitely gonna be a guy where if he takes guys down he can definitely control them and really be a, be a big threat off top as long as he is able to deal with some of the risks that are involved in mma and specifically with jujitsu in terms of not getting himself caught in any common submissions but you, you figure over time he'll be able to make those adjustments and He'll be a guy who's going to be really dangerous from top once he does get an MMA. As far as his striking goes, I have no idea what to expect there, but he has a pretty good wrestling style to transition over to MMA. Another one is Jacoby Smith. Um, I don't remember whether or not he was able to reach All-American status, but he was one of those guys who was right in that area. Uh, also wrestled for, for Oklahoma State. Um, I believe he was at 174. So, uh, again, he's going to be a guy who's either going to be looking at welterweight or middleweight. Um, very good wrestler, though, as well. Uh, not quite as good of a rider as Nick Piccinini is, but still very good with his takedowns, very good from neutral, good at getting the fight to the mat, and definitely has a skill set where if he's able to, to build some really good striking off of it and develop some good guard passing and some good top game, he'll he'll be dangerous as well. Uh, Piccinini is obviously the um, the more the, the one with more accolades, I would say. Um, he, he's definitely the one that I would expect more things out of, especially given the weight class that he's looking at, especially if it's flyweight. Uh, Flyweight's at a point right now where they've got like 15 guys in the UFC, it feels like. So for him, it's not going to be immediate, but it, if the Flyweight division is one that still takes a while to, to grow and sort of develop, it, it'll be a quicker road to the top because there are going to be a few people he has to pass on the way there. Uh, so we'll, we'll see what weight he takes, but if he does go at Flyweight, he could be a guy in a few years who, who whose name really starts popping up as a guy who can really cause some problems in that division. Uh, next topic to talk about is Mirabek Tysimov. So fairly brief here. I mentioned in the past, though, this was a guy who I thought was possibly a top five lightweight in the world, but wasn't really given a whole lot of opportunities, uh, given his visa issues. The visa issues, I'm sure, are still going to be an issue for him. Obviously, with the UFC being an American company and most of their shows happening in America, if you can't get into America, it's going to make it difficult for you to be there when some of the other contenders in your division are available to fight. And it's also going to make it difficult for you to to really be able to, to fight often and, and grow within a division. Um, but the guy's a great striker. Uh, very good defensive wrestling, uh, pretty solid on the ground. And as though he's like a major submission threat, but very positionally aware and very good about not getting himself caught in any really bad positions down there. Uh, did have that loss at Abu Dhabi, though, to Diego Ferreira, who is coming off of a win over Anthony Pettis and is now a, a top-ranked lightweight. Uh, so I guess if the Ferreira fight said anything, maybe it means that I was looking at Maribek Tysimov a little bit, a little bit, higher up than maybe he he's going to end up being but he's one of those guys where at least from a skill set standpoint he's been one of the top guys just really hasn't had the opportunities uh had a decent opportunity against Ferreira, sort of gassed out later on in the fight uh maybe if that fight's taking place in an arena that isn't 100 degrees maybe he he does better he did win the early round there uh and then was struggling in the later round so maybe that maybe that's what cost him there maybe had he been in a cooler a cooler arena Maybe he's able to hang on just long enough to take the first two rounds and hang on for a victory there, at least in a three-round fight. 
Uh, but whatever the case may be, it's nice that he's still in the UFC. He definitely has the skill set to be in the UFC. Uh, I would just like to see him get some more opportunities, maybe with Fight Island becoming a thing. Uh, in the meantime, maybe they're able to give him a fight soon. Uh, but even if not, if Fight Island is something where they set it up, I don't think they're going to go through all the trouble of setting this thing up and only run events in it during like May and June of 2020. Like I'm sure there'll be more events there, and there are also going to be other international events where Tyson Wolf can be put on the card. So. Hopefully he'll get some more opportunities. Um, I'd like to see him against some of the more or some more of the top ranked guys at lightweight. But either way, it, it's nice to see him back. Um, another wrestling story is Thomas Gilman from Iowa going over to Penn State. So he was a four-year wrestler in Iowa. Although I guess one of the years he ended up having to back up in the national tournament just because he had a pretty rough loss at a Minnesota duel. Um, but three-time All-American was number one his senior year uh, before losing to Darian Cruz in the semifinals. Uh, then wrestled back for third that year, and then went on to uh, have a decent career in the freestyle circuit. Uh, so got all the way up to silver medalist in 2017. Uh, worth noting that in the U.S. team trials to get onto the U.S. team, he had to go against the guy who beat him in NCAA's or in the NCAA semifinals and just absolutely ran through him. Uh, so just sort of had a bad performance at the wrong time there that kept him from ever being a national champion. But has done very well internationally. Uh, looks like he's the guy at 57 kilograms this year for for the U.S., which is 125 pounds. Really fun personality, really um, really ornery guy, um, but in a way that's definitely entertaining. Uh, but his main coach was Mark Perry at the Hawkeye Wrestling Club. Mark Perry ended up moving over to Arizona State because uh, it looks as though he was probably trying to get a, a job on the Iowa wrestling coaching staff, but apparently they just didn't have an opening for him and they weren't able to create one. So he goes over to Arizona State, and then Gilman's kind of put in this position where he's got a wife who is from out east who probably wants to move back closer to Pennsylvania. And Gilman's sort of like, well, do I go to Arizona State? And all I, all I really have there is that coach. Do I stay in Iowa, uh, where it seems like all the things are sort of closing around me? Uh, he's also kind of in a weird spot where a, a guy who's looked at as a possible 57-kilogram representative for the U.S., Spencer Lee, uh, who had a great U.S. Open this year, with him and Gilman being in the same spot, that sort of makes things awkward. Uh, from what he said in past interviews, the two of them don't really work with each other a whole lot just because they know that there's a good chance they'll have to face each other uh, first spot on the U.S. team. So that was sort of an awkward situation anyway. So he was looking to, to move somewhere, and apparently Penn State looked like that was the best option for him. He was saying that this has nothing to do with like a college rivalry. It's just about him uh, looking for the best spot for him to advance in his career given all the circumstances and with him being at a weight class where Spencer Lee also is. Iowa just wasn't the best spot for him right now. Uh, so kind of unfortunate obviously I'm an Iowa fan I'd rather not see him at the Penn State club I don't really look forward to seeing him wearing any Penn State wrestling gear which I'm sure at some point he'll be going into doing but he had a great career for Iowa I really enjoyed watching him as a fan and if this is what he feels like he needs to do to to move along in his career then so be it granted I would have preferred that he would have finished off his career this year and then moved over to MMA I think he'd be a great prospect in MMA but also just has a great personality for the sport in a sport where self-promotion is really important he's He's just one of those guys where anytime someone puts a mic in front of his face, you want to watch it and you want to hear what he has to say. Last topic to talk about, and I guess this is just fairly brief. Last week I had mentioned, and this is episode 51, that Claudia Doval, a multiple-time Black Belt World Champion, uh, had claimed that her old professor, Ricardo De La Hiva, a legend in the game, had sexually assaulted her. As far as the specifics of that, it, it seems like not much has really changed there. Um, but it does sound as though she plans on actually filing criminal charges now, which I, I guess that in, in a way is a good thing. Like if this is actually something that he does, and the way that she described it doesn't sound like something that someone would do just once and be done with it. 
um, then if Ricardo Delaheva really is a rapist or if he really is someone who goes around sexually assaulting people, it's best to take him off the streets. Uh, so that's that's the route that she's going as far as Delaheva goes. His response to it was just a really vague, um, a vague Instagram post that sounded like it was written by a lawyer, which you could argue one of two ways. One way you could say, well, it looks, you just got your lawyer involved. If I was accused of something I didn't do, I would be much more direct about it than he was. The other way is, well, look, this is probably going to a court of law, so maybe it's best to have a lawyer um, write it so you have a be- the best shot in the court of public law rather than the court of public opinion. Um, obviously, it matters to be able to win battles in the court of public opinion, but if you lose in the court of public opinion, you're not necessarily losing your freedom, but if you lose in a court of law, then you're going to be put in jail, and there are much more severe consequences, so maybe he was just leaning in that direction. But either way, the post itself pretty much just said, like, I've been an upstanding citizen. I have a lot of great schools, and a lot of people really appreciate me and view me as a mentor. Um, but there really wasn't ever any... And then it was like, well, the the allegations are false. But it wasn't like, no, this isn't true. I never went over to her place for a massage. Or if I did, I never like did anything against her will. Or I only massaged her back. or it, like There was nothing specific about like the actual allegations. It was more just like, I have shown to be an upstanding citizen people also agree that I'm an upstanding citizen I didn't do it like that's effectively what the message was uh, which isn't necessarily the strongest message and I think a lot of people feel like if they were accused of doing something especially if the accusation was specific that they would at least address the specific allocate or address the specific accusation and explain why the specific details that were provided were incorrect Um, so again this is a developing story we'll see where it goes from here Uh, if the charges are filed if they actually do bring them to court and if we actually do have a trial I'm sure that'll that'll go a long way um, but I guess for him, it seems like at least in the meantime, in, in some way he's fortunate that this happened during a lockdown. Because uh, like I mentioned, with Delhi Guard being such a common guard in jiu-jitsu, you feel like there's going to be a lot of people who are thinking about it the, at, at the front of their mind. But if people don't get back to training for quite a while, then maybe they'll forget about it or maybe they just won't be as upset about it by the time they actually do get back and start mentioning Delhi Guard again. But like I said, this is something that's probably going to be hanging around for quite a while. Um, those are the updates we have now, so I figured it'd be worthwhile mentioning them. So that covers it for this week. The plan will be next Sunday. I'll do episode 54 and just kind of get back on that weekly schedule. I don't know what sort of news could pop up over the course of the week that would force me to do a, a special podcast, but if something like that happens, like what happened last week, obviously I'll probably have the time to do it. I haven't been training in quite a while. Uh, most of the workouts that I've been doing are not very time specific. Obviously, if you're at a gym and six o'clock to eight o'clock is your your key class from six o'clock to eight o'clock you gotta be there whereas if you're just doing a home workout you can do it pretty much whenever you want so that gives me the freedom to do a little bit more uh during weeknights so that's what i was able to do this week and if there's anything that really deserves the attention i'll i'll do that again over the course of the week so if that's the case there's a decent chance there might be some youtube only content so that's what we had this week so the video right after california canceled the event i had a youtube only video so that wasn't included in the audio podcast um, but also had the new had the uh, episode 52, which was included in audio as well. But again, if you can subscribe to YouTube, subscribe to BitChute, uh, you'll be able to get updates every time that there's a new video. And then subscribe to the podcast if there's an emergency podcast like there was last week. Um, you would have gotten that put right into your feed immediately. So that would also be a good option for you. And again, if you enjoy this podcast, think it's a good podcast, and think this is the kind of content that should be out there more often in the world, uh, or at least in the MMA world, uh, feel free to share it. Uh, whether they're sharing links to the videos, whether they're sharing links to the subscribe page on um, Anchor or wherever else you're getting your podcast. I appreciate all of it. So thank you.